Welcome to Health or Consequences, the Commonwealth Magazine's podcast devoted to Massachusetts healthcare and public health policy issues. I'm Paul Hattis, one of the co-hosts from the Loud Institute, here with my colleague John McDonough from the T.H. Chan Harvard School of Public Health. And we're sitting down early in Thanksgiving week with uh, somebody that we had on very early in our, in our podcast uh, history, but now is joining us as he winds up 12 years of being the CEO of the Massachusetts Blue Cross Plan, Andrew Dreyfus. Uh, welcome, Andrew. Hey, Paul and John, it's great to be here with you. Thank you for joining us, Andrew. It's just a pleasure to be here with you. We see you, our listeners don't, but that's okay. Just to get right into things, earlier this month at the uh, Mass Health Policy Commission's annual cost trends hearing, you were viewed as sounding an alarm on healthcare affordability. What fuels your concern? What's the problem as you see it? And how bad is it right now, do you feel? Yeah, John, it is a big problem and I am very concerned. And so I think we all know, and I'm sure your podcast has covered that, um, you know, hospitals and physician practices and other healthcare organizations uh, delivering care are under a lot of pressure right now. They're facing high labor costs, labor shortages, uh, supply uh, chain issues. And we appreciate that and understand that. And we expect that um, hospitals and health systems will be asking us for kind of higher increases than they had in the past. But we're on the other hand, also hearing from our customers, from employers and individual consumers who themselves are facing intense economic and financial pressures and um, who can't really bear increased uh, cost of health insurance. You know, in the past decade, John, we've um, probably averaged between two and 3% kind of unit costs or price increases from our hospitals and physicians. And by doing that, combining it with value-based payments, we've been able to, as a plan, and for the most part as a state, stay within the state benchmark, either when it was 3.6% or 3.1%. Um, I think that's really at risk now. Hospitals, which used to negotiate with us with an eye towards that benchmark and to not exceeding it, have been very explicit with us that they think it's not relevant today. Um, many of them have been asking for increases that are four or five times the size of the benchmark. And of course, for your astute listeners, they'll know that the price of care usually only represents about half of the cost of care because there's a factor for utilization and severity. And so it really puts us on a path um, that we've been before, and you've experienced before, where health care premiums will start to grow at double digits. Health employers, uh, or just employers in Massachusetts, will find that unsustainable. And inevitably, the government will intervene either by capping the rates of health insurance premiums, or possibly with the Health Policy Commission taking more aggressive role around uh, the prices of providers. Now, Andrew, you've been worried, I know, and sounded the alarm about on affordability, and particularly at, at, at this last past, this past cost trends hearing, but you, I know you've been raising that issue of concern now for a little bit of a while. And one of the contributing factors I know you noted specifically at the 2021 hearings a year ago was market expansion related factors contributing to some of the challenge. And you at that time said that perhaps expansion ought to be a little bit more difficult for larger and more expensive healthcare providers. Uh, are you still thinking that? And if so, uh, how to best accomplish that? Yeah. Um, 
you know, Paul, there's a, a very strong body of evidence now that's been collected over the last decade or more that suggests that when um, health systems or hospitals or provider organizations consolidate, it results in higher costs, higher prices, and not necessarily higher quality. And the evidence is pretty strong. I myself was a pretty optimistic about um, that integration of healthcare organizations would actually improve both care coordination and quality. And there's some examples of that as well. But the stronger evidence is really about the price and cost increases. And we have a, already a very consolidated system in Massachusetts. I think about 80% of our payments go to five or six health systems in the state. And I think we should be very wary of any further consolidation without really strict uh, oversight. So, for example, when the Bethesda-Leahy merger was approved, it was accompanied by some pretty strict um, conditions placed on it by the Attorney General about the rate at which um, costs or prices could be raised. So I think we need those kind of protections. I think today we still have, unfortunately, uh, a somewhat a disjointed regulatory structure in the state. We have responsibility given to the Department of Public Health on the Determination of Need Program. We have the Health Policy Commission. We have the Division of Insurance, the Attorney General's Office. I think we need some better coordination there and whether it's strengthening the hand of the Health Policy Commission to look beyond the kind of narrow perspective they have now when hospitals or other providers consolidate or whether we need closer coordination between the Attorney General's Office and the Health Policy Commission and DPH, I think the status quo um, is unacceptable. Can I ask you and a corollary, yeah, corollary question that? Because you've been so far framing your response to us in terms of the acquisition kind of expansion mode, but what about the capital build-out mode of either when you're expensive and either you know, increasing your footprint within patient beds or laboratory sites, does the, does the same worry apply in your mind? Yeah, I, I think uh, you know this raises the issue: Could we have better coordination between the Department of Public Health (DON) process and the uh, Health Policy Commission kind of market reviews? And I think we need a more holistic view. We need to understand the cost impact of some of these uh, capital uh, improvements and investments. And um, there's there's usually a price or cost consequence of these investments, and we have to think about the kind of downstream impact, even while recognizing that um, you know hospitals need to make investments. And we've learned through COVID around infection control and other reasons that uh, some of these investments are important, but it's a matter of what kind of value are we ultimately delivering to the community? Let me move you a little bit away from yeah. thinking about some of the bigger places to perhaps some of their little, those are hospitals that are a bit more challenged. You know, the legislature recently passed a bill it gives about a total of $350 million out to Massachusetts hospitals because of the challenges that they're having financially. Did they direct the monies in the right way from your perspective, including to the most uh, needy hospitals? Um, and is this the best way to sort of help hospitals when they have these kinds of challenges? Yeah, well, I think it was a, a smart use of public funds and uh, given uh, a lot of the federal uh, spending that came to Massachusetts and the response to COVID, I think uh, helping especially vulnerable safety net organizations in Massachusetts is important. I'm not, I'm not going to kind of debate or criticize the distribution method. Um, it did seem like hospitals with a higher concentration of patients on um, public programs like Medicaid and Medicare got more of the funds. Um, I would like to think that we 
over time would develop a probably more rigorous analysis of the needs of these hospitals. I don't think we do that in as careful a way. I am old enough to remember a time when we had a state health plan and we uh, actually uh, analyzed um, health needs uh, within geographies and within hospital systems within within Massachusetts. We probably need that kind of program again. We have closed a lot of hospitals, so we do have to attend to those that are remaining. And it's not surprising that some of the hospitals, for example, and in cities like Lawrence and Brockton and Holyoke and, and Springfield often, you know, perform the worst in terms of kind of financial performance. And so we need to make sure we support them. On the other hand, um, one of the reasons that some of these hospitals are um, experiencing some difficulties is because the Medicaid program itself uh, pays less than either the Medicare program or commercial payers. And so the state is kind of giving with one hand while it it doesn't take away, but it pays less than it might with another. So I think we have to recognize that the state has plays multiple roles here with these um, institutions. You know, I occasionally get approached by a hospital that is in trouble in its community, and uh, they're asking us for some special consideration. And what I often say is, let's go together to the Commonwealth and say, this is a needed hospital. How are we gonna solve this problem as opposed to these kind of one-off solutions? So Andrew, earlier this year, the Health Policy Commission recommended that health plans like Blue Cross and um, the other major carriers, as you capture savings, you should return it to premium payers. Um, that may seem obvious to you or not. How do you respond to that recommendation and were you surprised to see it? Yeah, I wasn't that surprised. I think it actually intuitively makes sense. In some ways, we already have a mechanism today. Um, you know, you might think of it as a kind of insurer efficiency index that was passed a decade ago. You probably had a, had a role in writing those, those standards, John. And Massachusetts health plans, for example, have to spend, it was 90 cents, now it's 80 cents of every premium dollar in healthcare services. And if we don't, we have to automatically rebate the gap to our customers, which we did for the first time uh, last year as a consequence of COVID. And so I'm not afraid of having uh, tough requirements placed on us. And um, you know, there may, be, there may be other ways to do it. I still think that underlying drivers of cost in Massachusetts and nationally are the prices of both hospital and physician services and pharmaceutical costs. And we might wanna talk about what kind of efficiency test do we wanna put on those organizations uh, in, in parallel with us? And uh, mm -hmm. ought we to have a, a mechanism that uh, ensures that hospitals like health plans are spending the vast majority of their money on patient care? Mm -hmm. So it's been about two years since Tufts Health Plan and Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare merged into Point 32 Health. Yeah. And the explicit rationale for it was that Blue Cross needed a stronger competitor. Yeah. So two years into it, have you seen changes in the marketplace noticeably from that merger? Yeah. Has it changed yeah. anything? Not particularly from that merger, John. I mean, first of all, I would just say I we welcome competition and uh, both Tufts and Harvard were excellent plans. And I think Point32 is an excellent plan. And I have great respect for Kane Hayes. They're still relatively new CEO who's a colleague of mine. Um, and it's still early in the process. I mean, I think we will have to wait and see what kind of synergies they can create uh, working together. I would say in terms of kind of larger system changes, 
I'm, I'm more focused on, for example, both provider consolidation, which already touched, touched on um, the, the acquisition of, of large physician practices, for example, by Optum. And we really compete, you know, while we compete with point 32, we're really, you know, the, the biggest competition we feel right now is in the national market with United, Optum, CVS, Aetna, and Cigna, Express Scripts, Evernorth, these three large companies that I think are four or five and 13 on the Fortune 50 list and compete with us for customers here. They have a lot of scale. They have a lot of different diverse businesses that they can cross subsidize their health insurance. So they can actually lose money on medical insurance and make it up elsewhere. Like Point32, we are principally a, a medical insurance carrier. We also have a large dental business and some other ancillary services. And so it's a little harder for us also in a highly competitive environment to earn the returns we need to earn to reinvest in our business and to stay competitive. So uh, the market is changing. We're also just finally seeing, you know, the entry of uh, other big um, com tech companies like um, Amazon and Google and Apple and Walmart and, and retail companies in the healthcare space. And so it's a very volatile, uncertain market. Um, and obviously we believe that not-for-profit health plans like Blue Cross, like Point32, like Fallon and others in our market are good for the community and have proven to be collaborative and have helped support some of the big health reforms we've managed here in Massachusetts. So I worry a little bit about losing that special quality that we have in Massachusetts. So we certainly in that sense want Point32 to thrive and be a, a strong competitor and collaborator. So back in, I think it was about 20 years ago or so at Blue Cross, there was a conscious decision to go for profit or to stay nonprofit. And they chose to stay nonprofit and they set up the foundation of which you right. were the first executive director that played a central role in the Massachusetts 2006 health reform law. Um, is, is Blue Cross going to stay not for profit, do you believe? Is there, are the pressures uh, uh, creating a situation where there needs to be a re-examination of that decision yeah. from a generation ago. Yeah, I don't think we need to do. We do um, revisit it occasionally, you know, within our board as we kind of refresh our strategy every three or four years. And every time we ask the question, John, we have the same answer is that we believe that our community focus is actually an advantage for us and that um, our brand in the community is known uh, for its kind of commitment to healthcare system and to our members and our customers. And um, we've actually been making some big investments in areas like mental health and health equity. And that I think um, we would not do in the same with the same depth and commitment if we were, for example, a for-profit or a publicly traded company. And so I'm hoping that uh, that continues to be the case, that our commitments to the community both serve us well and uh, actually create some advantage for us uh, competitively. Um, we really believe in our not-for-profit mission. We are one of the, if not the only Blue Cross plan in the country that's legally chartered as a public charity, and we take pride in that. Okay, so no one should lose any sleep worrying that they're going to wake up and see that Blue Cross wants to go for a profit. They should not lose any sleep over that. Well, here, let me let me turn to uh, the elections and, and a key result, which in our state includes yeah. a new governor, Moore Healy, starting the first week of January. Um, do you have any thoughts for her and her new uh, administration about uh, top healthcare priority issues that they ought to be thinking about? 
Yeah, well, we've mentioned a few of them. First of all, I'm enthusiastic about Governor-elect Healy. Um, she has been uh, an attorney general who's listened very careful to, carefully to the healthcare community, has not been afraid to make tough decisions. We referenced a few earlier around healthcare. She did it one of her first acts in office. And um, and so she's she's a, a strong partner and, uh, and, a, and a great leader. Um, I think affordability is going to be um, one of the first issues she's going to have to face. We talked about it earlier. Um, you know, the, the pressure that hospitals and other healthcare organizations are facing in terms of labor costs are putting a lot of pressure on health plans like ours and will result in higher uh, premiums and higher underlying cost trends. I think COVID is not going away um, and that uh, any governor is going to have to pay a lot of attention to COVID. And I think we can't lose sight of that, um, even as, um, you know, we return to more kind of normal status that uh, we're just one difficult variant away from, uh, you know, being in a really challenging situation. I think health equity is the other big issue I would raise. Um, we're working very hard on this. There's a lot of momentum behind making big investments in health equity in Massachusetts. I'm sure this is an issue the governor-elect cares about a lot. Um, and, um, you know, some of us, uh, including both of you, have worked on, on health disparities and health equities for 20 or 30 years, but I think we would all acknowledge that we haven't really made a lot of progress. And um, this is, the, I think, the time to do it. We're, um, you know, we took a few steps. We did an audit of our own uh, disparities and published our first health plan in the country to kind of publish our own health disparities and then um, gave similar audits to the physician practices that we work with so they could see how they fare compared to some of their um, colleagues in the community. We then worked with the Institute of Healthcare Improvement and gave them a $25 million grant to help see changes uh, in hospital and physician practices. And uh, we hope literally within the next few weeks to announce that we have our first um, health system that is gonna um, accept health equity measures as part of our value-based framework. So we're actually gonna be paying for equity improvements, paying for striving for the goal of zero disparities. So, so I think uh, healthcare affordability, COVID, and health equity would probably be top of the list for for the incoming governor. She has a few other issues outside of healthcare to worry about too. Look, exciting evolution, and, and, and I guess John and I will both will look forward to seeing the, the details of of the, that arrangement with the system. So you've you've given a pretty good laundry list for the state, but let's turn to what's going on nationally now, where we're gonna have a Republican controlled house, a very narrowly controlled Senate by the Democrats, President Biden having two more years. Do you expect anything much to happen in the healthcare area in these next two years out of Washington? You know, I don't, Paul. Um, I think uh, divided government will probably cause gridlock, especially on healthcare issues. Um, we may see some small movement and issues like telehealth innovation, or we obviously have the recently passed pharmaceutical pricing reforms, and we'll be interested to see to what extent the House tries to challenge that. I think we'll see some investigations on the House side, um, although with such a narrow majority, I think they may be limited in how, how far they can go on that. Um, one interesting issue that I've been reflecting on is um, what wasn't in, in debate, um, during the um, the recent election, and that was the Affordable Care Act. And so every previous election has been a big issue. It's to me a kind of testimony to um, 
the lasting impact of that law. You know, um, John, you worked on a lot, both in, at the state level and at the federal level. And um, so I'm pleased to see that. It's a reminder that reforms take a long time to really uh, uh, take root. Um, and, um, you know, there'll be some issues as we come out of the uh, public health emergency. There'll be some issues about a lot of people who have been able to stay on Medicaid or subsidized insurance and some risk of many of them falling off in the coming year as that public health emergency is wrapped up. Um, but I don't, I don't actually think the federal government is going to be kind of locus of a lot of healthcare innovation reform, which is why our earlier conversation about trying to kind of strengthen the Massachusetts regulatory framework around affordability, I think is really important. And we, we've seen, and John, you've written about this, that the, the locus of, of healthcare innovation, the government level kind of goes back and forth from the state and federal government almost by the decade. And I think we're gonna be back in a state decade. And I've been watching as you probably have some initiatives in places like Colorado and Oregon and Washington of kind of public options and things like that. So it's gonna be an interesting time to follow state health reform. So I'd, I'd like to ask you just a little bit about the national health insurance industry as, uh, as one of the few major nonprofits in the industry right now, you play an important role or you've played an important role in the National Blue Cross Blue Shield Association and in America's Health Insurance Plans, which is the major lobbying organization. Um, over the decades, the national plans have become larger and larger and more consolidated and buying up competitors where we're seeing, uh, for example, in the Medicare Advantage market, a concentration among the major players, uh, most of them except for Kaiser, are for-profit. Um, do you think the U.S. right now is, is too overly dominated by the large players in the insurance industry? And we know the Biden administration has been taking a different attitude on antitrust and I'm just wondering your views on what's going on, what's happening on the national scene. Yeah, this, you're absolutely right, John, that there has been a lot of consolidation on the health insurance side as there has on the health system or health delivery side. And um, there actually has not been a lot of strong antitrust enforcement over the last decade, although you're right that there's a new interest in it. Maybe a little late um, in the health insurance side because we have three such large national plans. And as I mentioned earlier, they're very diversified that own assets in pharmacy benefit management and care delivery. Um, and so I think we have to watch that very carefully. Um, there is still um, a strong presence of not-for-profit plans, especially not-for-profit blue plans in the country. We still have the largest collective membership uh, in the nation, every zip code, every neighborhood in the, in the country, and mostly not-for-profit, there are some um, there's one group of publicly traded plans within the blue system. I think that we have to continue to um, assert the not-for-profit voice and mission here. I think it is different. I think it matters. Um, and I, I know that um, we will continue to do that here uh, in Massachusetts. If, if we're not careful, could we in Massachusetts wake up five or 10 years from now and see our health insurance market transformed into a for-profit space largely? Is that a risk or possibility? I, I think it's always a risk and I do worry about that. And so that is something that kind of keeps me up at night, so to speak, um, that these plans will get, these publicly traded plans will be so big and so influential and own so much, so many assets, it'll be hard. 
Um, I've had to get to know uh, two words that I don't yet accept in Scrabble. One is frenemy and the other is co-optition. And so, um, you know, in some ways, because let's say in the case of United owns Optum, which owns Atrius Health and 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 the Reliant Health in the in the Central Mass area, we need to work with them, and we have a positive relationship with them. Um, we work with CVS uh, both in a retail way and and starting in January as a our pharmacy benefit manager. And so, I think we're going to have we're going to probably have a mixed system and work together. But it's something we're going to have to monitor, and I think it's something again. The state should keep an eye on and and think about whether there are opportunities to actually protect and ensure that um, not-for-profit health plans thrive in the state. Andrew, as we, as we begin to wrap up, and I could have started our discussion today with you, but decided maybe to do it here, which is to you know briefly comment and not only the 12 years as CEO of the plan and working on equity issues as you just mentioned, or the alternative quality contract and many other accomplishments or before that at the foundation and the roadmap to coverage, which was, you know, instrumental in, in leading us to what ultimately became known to probably our listeners as, as Romney care. And then, you know, work at the Mass Hospital Association and in government for the Dukakis administration is a, a rich experience uh, that you're leaving your, your current position from. And so finally, any, any words with, uh, from all of that perspective to share with Sarah Islin, your successor, as well as maybe sharing a little bit with our listeners about what your professional engagement efforts are likely to look like next, if you would. Yeah, well, Sarah Islin is one of the best, smartest, most strategic people I've ever worked with. So I think she probably doesn't need much advice from me. And I think she's going to be a superb leader, both um, uh, adding, you know, to, and strengthening the work we're doing in areas like health equity and mental health, but I'm sure bringing her own views and ideas and innovative mind uh, to the company and to the healthcare community in Massachusetts. I think we're lucky to have her back. In terms of my own plans, I, I'm stepping down as CEO of Blue Cross, but I actually am not retiring um, from the healthcare, and um, I'm going to stay focused on this mission of um, trying to make healthcare better, uh, both make it uh, higher quality, more equitable, more affordable. I plan to do that through um, advising uh, some both young and mature companies, um, uh, doing some teaching. I'll be a fellow at the Harvard School of Public Health in the spring semester. Um, I just joined the board uh, of the Joint Commission um, that uh, you know regulates and oversees hospital quality and safety, which connects me back to some early work in my career on quality and safety. Um, I started my career as a journalist. You didn't mention that, Paul, but I plan to do some writing. I've tried to write while I've been in this job. I think I'll have an even freer hand now. And so I hope to kind of contribute to the dialogue and debate about how we continue to kind of push the healthcare system forward in a collaborative way and take some of these lessons that we've learned in Massachusetts about collaboration and cooperation and trying to kind of get out of our healthcare silos and act not in our in our individual company's interest, but kind of in the community interest. So I plan to do that. I look forward to kind of mentoring. I've been doing some mentoring of some next generation leaders, and that's a fun way to kind of pass on uh, some perspective and experience. So we are regrettably, Andrew, out of time. I just want to say uh, personally and professionally, congratulations on four amazing decades of service from so many different points of view in Massachusetts healthcare and health policy. 
And congratulations. It's been a really amazing ride to watch and we're glad that you're still gonna be active and engaged. So much appreciation for joining us and for everything that you've done. Thank you so much, John. That wraps it up. We will be back in December and we're having a kind of a goodbye tour with these editions. We'll be welcoming in December uh, Health and Human Service Secretary Mary Lou Sutters from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts will be stepping down after eight years in that role in December. So we hope you can join us on that. And uh, for my colleague, Paul Haddis, and thanks again to Andrew Dreyfus. Thanks everybody for joining us.